Count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Father, would you help us this morning to think scripturally? I pray that the Spirit of God would help us as we look forward to a new year stretching out in front of us, and we trust, Lord, that you'll give us an opportunity to accomplish some things for your glory. I pray that you'd give us some perspective this morning. Help me as I speak to be clear and scriptural. I pray that you'd challenge our hearts We pray for those who are still on their way, that you'd watch over each one, give safety and care for us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that you give us to serve you and to live for you, and we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So often at the beginning of the year, we set goals, and you've heard me speak about that in the past, and I think it's a fitting time, although it's not the only time that we can set goals for our life, it's a fitting time to take inventory of where we've been and to get some perspective of where we believe God would like us to go. And often as people set goals and just step over into the secular realm a little bit, although I think this applies in the spiritual realm as well, it's interesting how often people will set a goal which will be quite um, ambitious, and then the result of that ambitious goal might be, and, and they have a saying at, the, at the, the gym, the health club, you know, everybody joins for January 1, but by, don't hang in there, you know, if you're a faithful gym goer, by February it's going to clear out. And a lot of people will get a year's membership, but they're done by February. They've lost track of the ability to go. You know, they started the year thinking, I'm going to lose uh, you know, 50, 60 pounds, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And, and then when it comes right down to it, uh, achieving those goals is another thing. A lot of times we have big ideas for our life. We think of great things that we could accomplish in our life. And we, we say, I want to really do something significant for the Lord. Uh, I, I really want to I really make my life count. And we've got different sayings that we use and, and they're not necessarily wrong. I was told, I was talking with a man several years ago, and as I was chatting with him, and it was around this time of the year, he said to me something, I'm not going to quote him, but he said something along these lines as he was in maybe the later years of his middle age, he was kind of frustrated, and he said, I I just want to accomplish something significant with my life. And what he was communicating, saying, was that in, his, in the physical realm, in the business realm for him, he wanted to do something that was, that was great, something that he would be remembered for, something that would maybe go down in history and, and people would remember, and that was going to give him the, the meaning that he was looking for, the sense that his life was worthwhile. And, and he was a believer. And... So you say, well, could believers sometimes grapple with these things? I think we do all the time. What is the meaning 
of my life. So this morning, I want to take a little bit of time and, and just back up from all of this. And I want to take a biblical view of what is man. And then what are some of the things that God would want us to really pay attention to as we think about this coming year? So, you know, here in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul, obviously, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking about some of his attainments according to the flesh. Some of these were things that he had nothing to do with. In other words, he was born into the tribe of Benjamin. He was born as an Israelite. He was born into a family that, that regarded highly the things of Judaism and being a Hebrew. Then there were things that had something to do with him. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which means he took his, evidently his parents' passion for Judaism and he carried that forward into his own adult life. He he was himself passionate. We know, for instance, that he sat under Gamaliel. Uh, he says that touching the law, he was a Pharisee, and that would put him in a certain class of people pertaining to the law and keeping of the commandments. And he was this means he was meticulous in his life. He was very careful in the way that he lived. He had a lot of zeal, thinking that Christ was opposed to Judaism and that he was false, he was persecuting the church and he was trying to stamp out Christianity. He was blameless according to the law with the righteousness that was expected. And and obviously he's not saying that he was without sin. He understood later he would say he was the chiefest of sinners. But as far as other people were concerned, you know, he was he was somebody who was, if you will, up and coming. He was, he, was the, he was in the who's who of the Pharisees. And in Jerusalem, everybody knew who Saul of Tarsus was. He had achieved some things with his life. But you notice in Philippians 3 that there came a point in his life where he said, the things that were gained to me, I set them aside and I counted them as loss for Christ. And then he goes on, a little bit later, and he says there's a need to forget those things which are behind. Verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. So think about this with me for just a few minutes. I want to start by talking about the faulty aspirations that men have. And this is the the side of forgetting those things which are behind. Before Saul of Tarsus met Jesus Christ, he had some faulty aspirations. To see this, we could go back to the book of Genesis. You can hold your place here in Philippians chapter 3 if you'd like. We'll be back here eventually. But let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, and let's notice that man has some faulty aspirations. Right in the Garden of Eden... There are, in that original temptation, there are some indications of the weakness of of man's flesh and the aspirations that tend to drive our lives. Satan, in the form of a serpent, came to Adam and Eve, and he began, you know, he was asking them about the tree, but in verse 5, he begins speaking to them about this tree 
And notice what he says. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. Notice the next phrase. And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In this case, Satan appealed to the sense of the pride of life. And he, he really had an inroads with Adam and Eve. We know that eventually, because of this, they sinned, they, they yielded to the temptation. But there's a weakness that we have as mankind, as human beings, and that is that we have an unrelenting desire to be great and to make a name for ourselves. We all want to be significant. We all want to be valued. We all want our life to mean something. We don't want to feel as if we are living and just existing and that our life has no meaning. And that's not necessarily a wrong thing, but Satan can capitalize on that if we're not careful. And here in the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted them with this thought, telling them that they could be as gods. They could be, in other words, more than what God had made them to be knowing good and evil. Now, we know that the result of this temptation and their yielding to it resulted in them being separated from God and cast out of the garden. And certainly there were some things that they found out about, that they knew about, that they had never known before, but they weren't good things. But a lot of this was because they had this unrelenting desire. Today, men have an unrelenting desire to be great. Men think, if I could get a building named after me, or a road named after me, or a town named after me, or maybe a country named after me, if everyone would know who I am. We were talking about this at our dinner table the other night with with the kids, and uh, we were talking about, even if you think about how few U.S. presidents are even remembered. So in in the history of our country, you could say, Whoever becomes president, that would be a pretty significant person in that generation, somebody who's pretty well known. And, and likely, you know, in your, in your elementary history class, you learned the names of the presidents. But if I were to put you on the spot this morning and start asking you about some of the specific presidents in the history of our country, chances are you know almost nothing about any of them like my kids said, except George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And, and you think about that, men have a desire, an unrelenting desire to be great, to be known, and yet the truth is that none of us, most likely, none of us are going to be known. None of us are going to be famous. We may desire to have some sort of uh, respect or honor and and, and yet, the truth is that we're relatively unknown. And then we were talking with the kids about how inconvenient it would be for everybody to know you anyway. Because hey, you go to the store, and then you've got people taking pictures of you, asking for your autograph, wanting to come up and talk to you, and you just want to live life like a normal person. So there are benefits to being relatively unknown. Turn over to Genesis 11. Genesis 11 really exposes this unrelenting desire of man to be great. And it's not just individual men, but it's actually societies of men 
that have this unrelenting desire to make a mark, to do something that is of significance. Genesis 11, you're probably familiar with the first nine verses. This is a description of an early civilization following Noah's flood. And, of course, at this time, everybody is speaking the same language. Everybody has pretty much the same culture. And they gather together. Now, remember that God had told them to, uh, to replenish the earth. And the implication was that man was to scatter, that man was to take dominion over the earth. But instead, man came together here in Genesis 11, and their aspiration is described in verse number four. They said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So now notice what their desire is. They, they said they want to build a city and a tower. We'll look at that in just a moment. What was the reason for building this city and this tower? It was so that they could make a name. Now, as best I can tell, this is all human beings on the earth at this time were in one place, and they were saying, we want to make a name for ourselves. This really reveals the heart of man. Man is always trying to create significance for himself. And when this becomes a problem, especially, is when man is trying to create significance for himself apart from God. That is, that is the pivotal issue in Genesis chapter 11. These people were trying to say, we don't really need God we can create significance for ourselves apart from God. So let's make ourselves a name. Many people today are living their lives attempting to create significance apart from God's truth and apart from God's ways. They're trying to say, you know, I don't need to believe in God to be a good person. I, I, I don't need to believe in God to understand how the world works and and they think of themselves as very intelligent, and in many ways they are. They think of themselves as very creative. They're trying to make some sort of a big splash in the world, and the goal is, I want to be remembered, I want to be significant, I want to leave my mark in this world. Now, in order to do this, there is an emphasis on that which is temporal and on gaining praise or notice from men which you'll notice there in verse number four, is wrapped up in what their plan was. They said, we want to build a city and a tower. So we're going to make ourselves a place where we're going to live. And I, you know, the implication of this is it's going to be a beautiful city. It's going to be a majestic tower. It's going to be something that is going to be a testament to the ingenuity and the ability of man. But notice that in creating significance for themselves, they were not at all concerned about their relationship with God. They were concerned with something that was here, now, something to look at, something to see, something that would cause people to say, wow, you did that, you built that. Now, we all understand this draw. I think this is part of the draw of creativity, that we have as human beings, and we'll talk about this in just a moment where this comes from, but this can definitely get out of bounds. 
And actually, a lot of what we see today is an emphasis on, especially in American culture, being somebody. You gotta, I mean, you gotta climb the ladder. You gotta get to the top. You gotta make your mark. You gotta let everybody know about your talents and your abilities and how significant you are. What is this about? Well, unfortunately, a lot of times this is about creating significance apart from the Lord. And Christians can fall into this as well. They can say, oh, you know, I really want to be something. I want to make a mark. I want people to know who I am. So there's an attempt to create significance apart from God. And the plan to accomplish this is we're going to use that which is temporal to gain notice or praise from other men. We're going to build things. We're going to make something that will be significant. What goes along with this is a faulty value system. And you notice in verse 4, their, their, their hope was that if they built this city and this tower, whose top would reach unto heaven, it would keep them from being scattered abroad. So they wanted to avoid being scattered off into other places of the earth. They wanted to stay together. Now this, again, is in contradiction to what God values or what God said was important. And they're thinking... We don't need God's way. We don't need God's plan. We have a better way of organizing life, of, uh, of making the world to be something that it ought to be. People today, you know, they, they really believe that the answer to all of men's problems is if we could just educate people. If, if, we, could, if we could give people a better socioeconomic status, if we could just uh, take away, you know, some of these things, then... then Society would be better. Crime would go away. All the problems would disappear. It's a faulty value system. Now, I'm not against education. I'm not against helping people with their socioeconomic status. But if we only focus on those things, we're ignoring that which God says is really valuable. So when we decide, okay, I don't need God's value system. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create value for myself. Then we find that we start putting an emphasis on things that God says are not as valuable. And what will happen is that we will get everything upside down. And all of a sudden, we're putting all of our focus on the things that are the least important instead of on the things that are the most important, which is exactly what we see today as people are trying to build value for themselves by uh, financial success, career success, uh, success in, in making or creating something that will bring notoriety to themselves, success in achieving a position, and they're putting an emphasis on things that God actually says we should never put an emphasis on. And where does this lead to? Well, it leads to rebellion against God and idolatry, which is exactly what is happening in Genesis 11.4, the reason they were building this tower, they said, was so that its top would reach unto heaven. And what is being described there is a worship system. They're, they're trying to build something that would allow them to no longer need to worship God. They, they don't want to have a relationship with God. They, they, want to, they want to pursue some other type of worship. Most likely, they're worshiping the things that are in the heavens, the stars, 
And this tower has something to do with their system of worship, as many ancient cultures had these sorts of structures that were dedicated to worship that was tied to the things that were in the heavens, the stars and the sun and the moon. Uh, So this ancient civilization comes to a place where they say, we don't need God, and we're going to to implement our value system. We're going to create value for ourselves. We're going to separate from God, and we're going to go after our own idols, and we're going to refuse to worship God. Now, we see this happen in cultures. We see this happen in individual lives, but this is a faulty aspiration. Even, you know, this time of year, people are making goals, and sometimes those goals are nothing more than faulty aspirations. They're setting for themselves, I want to do this, I want to accomplish this, I want to go here, I want to, I want to uh, meet this metric in my life. Okay, well, hold on a second, especially as a believer. Have you submitted that to the Lord? Is that something that is the Lord's will for your life, or is that just something that you want to do, that you want to go after? Because if you're not careful, you can start pursuing after things that will gradually lead you to a place where you are astray from God's will. And you are pursuing a plan that is a plan of your own making. And in a virtual sense, you are building a tower to reach unto heaven so that you don't need God anymore in your life. This is a dangerous thing. We need to be careful about our aspirations. Now, it's not all negative. So turn with me to Psalm 8. We see man with his faulty aspirations trying to achieve something of significance. And obviously, this is not God's will. This is not how God wants us to operate. But then we could ask the question this morning, so is man significant then? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Man is tremendously significant in the creation in that which God has made. Psalm 8, the psalmist asks the question in verse number 4, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. He's looking at, in this case, all of the firmament, the stars, the moon, the sun, the creation around him, that which he describes in this passage as the work of God's fingers, an incredible thought, you know, all those immense bodies that are out there in the heavens, and it's just like God said, well, let me put a few stars over here. How about a cluster? I think a solar system here would be nice. And, and he did all that. What an amazing thought. So that's all the work of his fingers. And then he asked the question, what is man? And, and if you could, just for a moment, in your mind, try to back up from the planet. Just zoom out from the planet and, and go out maybe to the level of the moon and look back at our planet. And, and to help you with this, if you've ever flown in an airplane and, and you get up in the sky 10,000 feet and you look down, Everything looks really small. And then maybe you get up to 30,000 feet and you're cruising. And you, if it's a clear day, you look down. You can no longer really make out the detail of a city. You certainly can't see cars on the road. It's, it's too far away. 
And then you think about yourself. Now, how big am I in comparison to a car? How big am I in comparison to a building? Now, back out even farther and look at the planet. What are you? A speck of dust? Less than a speck of dust? Now, I'm not trying to depress you. (laughs) Happy New Year! (laughs) I'm trying to help you get perspective, though, for a second, of how, in the the grand scheme of things, how insignificant man is, and yet man is significant. Because now, from that vantage point, Come right back down here to this planet, right to this room, to each and every one of you, and understand that in God's value system, you are most valuable. You are incredibly valuable. And the psalmist is asking this question, what is man? Because he's stunned that God would care or that God would pay any attention, that God would even notice man. Now, you'll notice here in, in Psalm 8, as we're thinking about the biblical view of man and his accomplishments, that man's value is declared by God. So, a, a baseline truth that all of us need to understand is the reason that we have value is because God says that we have value. It is a very dangerous thing to attribute value to people based on their accomplishments. If we do that, then we quickly go to the parts of our society that seem to contribute no value, perhaps those with terminal disease or those with some sort of a sickness which impairs their abilities to function either mentally or physically, And if we're basing value on what people can contribute and what their accomplishments are, then the next step is, well, these people are not really contributing much of anything, and so we should probably just mercifully let them out of this life because they're just taking up space and resources that other people could use more valuably, you see. It's not a far step, and we hear a lot of people talking in this way that this is, you know, like abortion, this is, this is where abortion comes from, is the idea, well, this child is just going to bring a burden, it's going to bring difficulty, so it'd be better if we just terminated this child's life now, rather than think about uh, how we're going to care for this child, or, you know, the other difficulties that might come. Um, in, in, I think it's the Netherlands, they've eliminated Down syndrome completely in the country, and the way that they've done that is by screening before birth and terminating every pregnancy that could end in the child having Down syndrome. That is a catastrophe. And that is man thinking the only way that people bring value is through their accomplishments, through what they can contribute. Now, besides the fact that they're missing some things that people could contribute who have these sorts of handicaps or these sorts of of things that hinder them in parts of their life, there's also the fact that they're totally ignoring the fact that value for man is actually established by the declaration of God. According to the declaration of God, every life is significant. Human life is important. God declared man to be significant, and he said, 
in verse 5, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. And what he's referring to when, when he's talking about man being a little lower than the angels, he's talking about ability and power. Because we know angelic beings, they have some powers or some abilities that we do not have. And yet, though man is a little lower than the angels, man gets more attention than the angels from God, which is very interesting. And then he goes on and he says, Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. So God said about man, which, by the way, think about this with me. Man was created. We saw how the firmament was created by the fingers of God. But man was created from the dust of the earth, and then God breathed into him the breath of life. So while the stars were made by the fingers of God, man was made by the breath of God, which is fabulous. That's that's a really powerful thought. So God says man has glory and honor. Why does man have glory and honor in creation? Simply because of this, because God says so. Because God has declared it. God also gave man dominion over the works of his hands. God gave man the ability to exercise authority in creation. There is no other creature that God has made that has the creativity, the ingenuity, and the ability to take the resources that God has made and do creative things with them. So, for instance, and and I said we would address this, where does man get this desire to create? It it comes from God. God is the one who puts that in our heart to take the things that he has provided and to use those resources to take dominion over them for our own good and for the good of other human beings. And there's lots and lots of examples of this. Then God says that he has put all things under his feet. And again, this is the idea of man exercising authority over creation. God God gives man the ability to be in charge of these things. This is why uh, man ought to be careful with the environment. We, We ought to take care of the world that God has given to us. We also ought not to go crazy about that, thinking that somehow we are the saviors of the world and it's all dependent upon us. Um, I mean, you see all kinds of crazy things proposed. I'm just going to throw this out to you. Uh, The crazy rich people have decided, Bill Gates is right there at the top, uh, that they need to, to block climate change. And so they're experimenting with the idea of spraying things into the atmosphere to block the UV rays that warm the atmosphere so that we can cool the earth down. Now, does anybody see a potential problem with this? Like, first of all, who do these people think they are? Second of all, do you think that anything could possibly go wrong? That that maybe... Maybe you don't fully understand. But see, now part of this is the fact that God has given man dominion. Man can take the resources of this world and manipulate them. Men can build huge buildings. Men can create machines. 
that, that operate in incredible ways on the macro level and on the micro level. Man is given this incredible ability by God and it comes from God and it's a wonderful thing. It can certainly go askew, but it can be used by God for the good of creation and for his glory. But what I want you to understand is that at the foundational level, our value, every one of us have value, and that value is declared by God before we have done anything. There is nothing that we can do to create more value for God. There's no sense in which, okay, well, if I reach level three, I'm really valuable to God. No. He has declared that you are valuable, and if you know anything about your sinfulness, you realize that his declaration of your value is against all common sense. Really, you are his enemy. You have set yourself at enmity against God and his law, but he in his graciousness has said, you're valuable enough not only that I have given you great authority, dominion, and ability, but also that in your place of rebellion where you find yourself, I have sent my son to die in your place so that you can be reconciled to God. This is an incredible expression of God's value of man, which leads us to this thought that our value is not only declared by God, also our value is determined by our relationship with God. It's not determined by the things that we accomplish. It's determined by the relationship that we have with God. Notice it says here, thou art mindful of him. Why did God declare man to have great value? Because God wants to have a relationship with man. God is mindful of man. This is like you being mindful of an ant and saying, I really want to be friends with that ant. I really hope that I could have a relationship with that ant. I, I hope that, that we could get close with one another in fellowship. You think, wow. The, and actually, that, the distance between us and God is much farther than the distance between us and a bug. Right. But you understand that this is what God has said. He, he is mindful of us. He wants to have a relationship with us. And this is what gives us value. By the declaration of God, God relates to man like he relates to no other part of creation. Even the angels don't have the same relationship to God that man is given the opportunity to have. And in light of the fact that we just remembered the incarnation, verse 4 says, and the son of man that thou visitest him. And I don't want to dwell on this a long time because I want to get to the last part of the, the lesson this morning. But just think about how incredible it is that the God of heaven came to this earth which he had made and, and not only came to be among man, but he became a man and then dwelt among men. And he did all of that for the purpose of redemption. And this really shows us the value that God places on man. Now, notice the contrast between man's system and God's system. Man's system says, you're valuable because you contribute. You're valuable because you achieve. You're valuable because you, you come up with things that add value to other people. God says, you're valuable because I said you are. Amen. You're valuable because I made you. 
You're valuable because my son died for you. You're valuable because you can have a relationship with me. It's a totally different thing when you think about that. Mm-hmm. All right, so man has these faulty aspirations. The Bible has a different view of man. If you extrapolate from Psalm 8, what is it exactly that we are going to do that is going to add tremendous value to God? All right, well, let's think about that. And with that, let's think about a worthy and reasonable goal for this coming year. Or it's not coming anymore, it's here. So a couple of things. First of all, Rather than focusing on a relative sliding scale of accomplishing great things, perhaps we should submit our lives to the Lord. Jeremiah 45, verse 5, you've heard me quote this verse before. I'll quote it again. The question is asked of Baruch, the scribe of Jeremiah, And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not, God said. It is not God's will for any of us to seek great things for ourselves. Now, I'm not trying to take away initiative or desire to accomplish or say anybody who wants to accomplish anything is out of the will of God, but I am going to point out that we must be very cautious about our accomplishment drive because usually our accomplishment drive is closely linked to our acceptance And many times we're trying to achieve something so that we can be accepted, accepted by others, maybe even accepted by God. We're trying to carve out a place of significance for ourselves. In a world of 8 billion people, we're trying to say, I am special. I'm somebody that's significant. And the way that we get there is usually by stepping on the heads of anybody that is around or below us. Pay attention to me. I'm on top. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Be careful. Be careful about human accomplishment. You say, okay, well then, if I shouldn't be focusing on my accomplishments, what does God want me to do? Well, with that in mind, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I hope you still got your place in Philippians 3 because we're going to look at that in just a second as well. One of the things that can be discouraging and depressing for some people around this time of year is they hear other people setting goals and they say, well, I've set goals before and haven't achieved them. I'm tired of setting goals. I'm tired of failing. Maybe some of you feel that way. Or they may look at others and say, well, look at how much all these other people are accomplishing. I'm not accomplishing even half of that. I don't have the energy. I don't have the ingenuity. I don't have the ability or the resources. So does that mean those people are more valuable than I am? And actually, in our culture, that is the way that it's designed. Those people who accomplish, they are the most important. They are the most Uh, uh, of most notoriety. They're the ones who get the attention and everybody else is kind of like, well, they exist, you know. So notice what God values. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. 
Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. Faithful. Now, a steward is someone who is given a responsibility. In, in Bible days, this would be someone, you could have the steward who oversaw the kitchen of the house. And his responsibility was to make sure that everything was done properly, that all the resources were accounted for, that the meals were on the table at the right time. There might be a steward who was responsible for the financial resources of the master. And his responsibility was to take those financial resources and invest them wisely and look for good business opportunities. Now, obviously, some of those stewards would have more attention than others, would be more noteworthy than others. But in a house, in a great house, every one of those stewards was important. You might think, well, you know, it's my place doesn't seem that significant. It doesn't seem that important. I, you know, one of the things that, that can happen in a church or in Christianity is this idea, well, you know, the people who go in the ministry, they are really important. The, the pastor, the, the, the pastoral staff, the, the people who go as missionaries, they are the really important ones. And they are, and we praise God for them following the call of God, and we're grateful for God's hand on their life. But I don't know if you've thought much about this. You, you don't really have missionaries being sent out without some people who stay behind and pay the bills. Without some people who say, you know, I'm willing to be in church on Sunday and go on visitation on Tuesday evening or Saturday morning, and I'm going to be involved in Bible study. I'm going to help with a, with a, a Sunday school table. I'm going to be down in the children's ministry. I'm going to give my tithes and my offerings. It's kind of hard for missionaries to go without people like that. So are we going to say, well, only the people who go in the ministry are important? Well, that would be a very foolish thing to do. And it would, it would create a false idea that the only way to be significant is to surrender to the ministry, which is wrong. Because if you surrender to the ministry and go to do something that God hasn't called you to do, you're out of God's will. You're doing something willfully, hoping to achieve some sort of significance for yourself instead of yielding to God's plan and purpose for your life. What I'd like to say this morning is that I appreciate every single church member who is faithful. I am very grateful, and I believe God is grateful for your faithfulness. You can't have a church without faithful people. But notice this. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. What does God value? God values you being faithful with the place with the responsibility that he has given to you. God has not asked you to do something that he has asked someone else to do. God has not called you to be the Apostle Paul. He has not called you to be one of our missionaries that's on the foreign field. He has called you to be you and to fulfill the responsibility that he has given you in the place where you are at right now. Does that make sense to you? Faithfulness, most of the time, involves quietly serving and fulfilling your responsibility without anyone noticing. You know, we think about today, big names, big people, important people. Oh, this person's so important. 
Steve Jobs, he was really important, visionary, accomplished so much, changed the world. Yeah, it's great. But what about the lonely factory worker who puts together the semiconductor chip that goes in your phone? Does your phone work without that semiconductor chip? Nope, it doesn't. Does Steve Jobs, did he accomplish much without engineers who knew how to build and design the things that he wanted to build? No. You see, what you think about is for every great person that gets a lot of attention, there's a whole bunch of ordinary people. We have no idea what their name is. We don't know how much money they made. We don't know where they live. We don't know anything about them. How many kids did they have? They're never going to have a book written about them. But you couldn't have a company like Apple without ordinary people who do the job. So there's people who get a lot of attention, but mostly faithfulness is not the people who get a lot of attention. It's like when you go to a a concert, classical music concert, the orchestra is there. It's so fun, you know, they're all making all this noise when you walk in there. Everybody's like blowing on their horn and doing stuff with their string. And the guy on the piano is like, and then, and then after a while, the first violinist walks in. Now, the first violinist, if you're not familiar with orchestra, I mean, they are like, they are the one. And they come in there besides the conductor, after the conductor, or if there's a guest musician, that first violinist is the one who's going to come in, and everybody goes, ah! And they bow, and they say, oh, yes, okay, good. And every once in a while, if the concert's good at the end, they'll tell everybody, stand up, stand up. And they'll have everybody bow, and it's great, you know. And here's the thing. They may be a phenomenal, they are a phenomenal violinist. They didn't get to that place without being really good. They're, They're excellent at what they do. But if you took away everybody else and just had them play by themselves, no matter how phenomenal they are, the orchestra doesn't sound the same. So while they have a position, everybody, the poor lonely guy in the sixth row with the violin is actually important. His sound is contributing to the fullness of the orchestra. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. You may think, well, I'm not that important. You are important. Why? Because God says you are important and God has given you something to accomplish with your life and he wants you to be faithful. You don't have to be on the platform to do something significant for God. In fact, a lot of the things that are done for God that are significant are not done on the platform. They're done out in the workaday world. They're done in the private conversations that the pastor may never even know about. They're done in the faithful, uh, the faithful actions of parents raising their children to love the Lord and to honor God and to go on and serve Him with their lives. So you say, what is a worthy and reasonable goal? Here's a worthy and reasonable goal for every one of us. I want to be faithful with what God has given me. I want to be obedient to God in the place where God has called me to be. Are you a dad? Then be a faithful dad. Are you a mom? Then be a faithful mom. Are you an usher? Then be a faithful usher. 
Do you work in the children's ministry? Then be a faithful children's ministry worker. Do, do you go on visitation? Then be a faithful evangelist of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you sing in the special music or in the choir? Then be faithful in doing the thing that God wants you to do. But be faithful. We don't do it for attention. We don't look, do it so that other people will say, oh, look at what they're doing. We just do it because God has given us that responsibility. And we want to be faithful to Him. It's a worthy and reasonable goal. Now, this faithfulness is a means of worshiping God. In, in Philippians 3, are you still there? The Apostle Paul said his goal in verse 10, after he put everything in the past that he had accomplished, he said, what do I want out of life? That I may know Him. If you accomplish nothing else with your life, no more significant goals. Let's say that for you, you were reduced physically through some sort of an accident or a physical disease to a place where you no longer could function the same way that you do now. Let's just say you, you were put in a place where you could only sit in a chair or lay in a bed. Your mind was still active, but that's all that you had left. Would you still be significant? Well, you would be, and you could be, because God's goal in your life is that you would know Him. That you would know Him. And and what this is speaking about is worship and fellowship. It's talking about the function of fellowship and how we need to draw near to God. The Apostle Paul, at the end of it all, was saying, you know, and and we think of the Apostle Paul like, whoa, that guy, he really did something, man. He won a lot of people to the Lord, planted a lot of churches. Woo, that guy is somebody. I want to be the Apostle Paul. And he said, you know what I want? I want to know him. I want to praise him. I, I want to worship him. Because at the end of the day, the accomplishments of the Apostle Paul are not in what he did but rather in who he was as a worshiper of God. Think about this in regards to worship. You and I are designed by God for the purpose of worship, and that is the most significant aspect of who we are, is our worship life. We think it is the things that we do, the accomplishment, the value that we bring, but really it's our ability to worship God and you and I will be worshiping God for all of eternity. So we should go ahead and prepare now. Sometimes people say, what are we going to do for all of eternity? And you say, well, we're going to worship the Lord. What? I mean, come on, we got to do more than that. Oh, you don't get it yet, do you? You don't understand yet. You think, you think that you are really significant because of what you can do and what you can offer. And what God wants is your worship. He's bringing us to a place of making us worshipers. The scripture goes so far as to say that everything that we do here, every word and every deed that we involve ourselves in should be all done to the glory of God. That is, every aspect of our lives is an act of worship. Whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do. Everything should be an act of worship. So, as you vacuum the floor, 
Are you doing it to the glory of God? You come for your church cleaning assignment and take out the garbage? Is it for the glory of God? You, you ladies are downstairs jiggling a crying baby and trying to keep that baby quiet and hoping that you don't have to call mom to come down? Are you doing it for the glory of God? You're ushering, you're opening and closing the door, trying to save our thermostat and our energy bills. As an usher, are you doing it for the glory of God? I mean, wherever you're serving, are you, are you just worshiping God? And are you content with the place where God has put you, the place of service where God has said, this is a stewardship that I've given to you? Now, as we think about man's faulty aspirations and we think about the biblical view of man and his accomplishments, and then we think about a worthy and reasonable goal, which is be faithful in the place where God has you. I want you to think about one more thing, and this is truly a reminder of the significance that God gives to each and every one of us. What we find is that with faithfulness, Things that seem very little can make a huge impact. Things that seem so insignificant, a word fitly spoken in due season, the book of Proverbs says, is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Say, a word? A phrase? Yeah, because something that is really little can become something that is really big in God's hands. God has made it so that our faithfulness can redound to the glory of God. So that little acts of faithful service can add up in the big picture to a big impact in this world. You think about the big impact that an ordinary person can make with their life. Are they going to be famous? Is anybody going to build a monument to them? Is there going to be a bridge named after them? No, probably not. Chances are most of the people in their town have no idea who they are, and yet the impact that a single person who is faithful to God and his cause can have on the world is truly astounding. Truly astounding. I think if you started to think about the place where God has put you and the people that God has put into your life. So often we are chafing for something larger, for something more significant, for something that's maybe more in the limelight. And what we'll find out is that right where God placed you is exactly where you should be. And don't underestimate the impact that you can have in that place. How many of us could look back in our life and while we may have been exposed to some evangelist who came through and preached a dynamic powerful message and maybe that moved our heart from time to time the greatest impact I I think that each of us would find that was made on our own individual life was from the ordinary Christians that we spent time with who quietly counseled us from the scriptures and pointed us to the truth of God's word and their regular input over a period of time just being faithful has made the greatest impact in our life to cause us to become more like Christ.
when it comes right down to it, God didn't call any of us to be great. He just calls us to be faithful. So this morning, as you think about your goals for this coming year, I want you to think about what are some areas where God wants you to be faithful. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're weary in the place where you're at. Moms, it can get tiring in the house with those kids. All right, what am I doing? Is this really valuable? Does this matter? It matters. Be faithful in that area. You say, I've got this ministry. Does anybody even notice? Does it matter? Is there any, is there any value that comes from this? It matters. Be faithful. So find those places and say, I want to be faithful in the small things. The prophet Zechariah said, despise not the day of small things. God is able to take something that is small and use it for his great glory and for a tremendous impact upon the world that is around us. You don't have to be great to be significant in the kingdom of God. Actually, Jesus said, the servant is the one who is significant in the kingdom of God. If you're aspiring to greatness, you're aspiring to the wrong thing. Just serve the Lord in the place where he's put you and do small things. You'll be surprised how much of an impact it makes on the lives of those around you.